Shalom and welcome everyone to the ICEJ webinar series. I'm David Parsons, one of the vice presidents here at the International Christian Embassy Jerusalem and our senior spokesman. And uh, on today's webinar, we're going to be dealing with Israel on trial at The Hague. And it's not just one trial, there are actually three uh, major serious legal actions pending against uh, Israel right now. Uh, in The Hague, two at the International Court of Justice, one an official probe for war crimes at the International Criminal Court. And we're going to be joined by Andrew Tucker, who is in, involved in, in all of these. Good to see you, Andrew. See you, David. Andrew Tucker is an international lawyer specializing in legal issues related to Israel and the Middle East. And he's the director of THINK. It's uh, the Hague Initiative for International Cooperation and uh, former executive director of Christians for Israel International, a pro-Israel Christian organization. And he's uh, a co-author of a book uh, similar to our subject today, Israel on Trial, published in 2018. It really gets... Uh, uh, you, you're going to learn a lot about all the legal issues facing Israel through that book. But Andrew, you had the distinction this week of um, one of these cases, the request by the UN General Assembly for an advisory opinion on whether Israel's uh, presence in Judea, Samaria, the West Bank and Gaza uh, over such a long period, uh, 50-some years now since 67, uh, is, is actually an illegal occupation. But you were one of uh, the legal teams from 50-some countries. You were part of the Fiji team, correct? That's correct. That made a presentation. Let's. Uh, I'm going to share my screen quickly and uh, let everyone see that uh, here's Andrew uh, right here uh, sitting on the bench. This is the, the, the Fiji ambassador to the UN, I believe. And there's Andrew sitting there uh, in the court, and there's your uh, your partner, your colleague, uh, Peter. Yes, correct. Yes, uh, behind him in the colorful tie. But, uh, so you were involved in, in the arguments. We'll, we'll try and deal with all cases, but we're, all three cases at some level. But we really want to focus on two weeks of the hearings about this advisory opinion on um, the the real the legal status of uh, the territories. So tell us what uh, the background and what y'all were arguing. So thank you so much, David. Well, first of all, thank you for the opportunity, and I want to acknowledge the wonderful partnership that we have as Think with ICEJ. Uh, you're being very supportive of our work, and we are collaborating together. And we want to collaborate even more because uh, this legal work. Um, needs uh, your support, but also um, we want to help your work in advocating the, the position, the case for Israel. And there is this whole question of lawfare and the use of law, which is part of the old, the the battle for Zion, as you might call it. So we're here as a resource to help you in the ICJ um, network. So this is a great opportunity today. And with your permission, I have a few slides that I want to share, so I'm going to bring those up now on my screen. And with a bit of luck, this is what you will see. Is that is that working, David? 
Yes, I, I can see it well. Okay. So uh, just let me sketch a little bit uh, the context. It's 100 years since, a uh, little over 100 years since the mandate for Palestine. Remember the liberation of Jerusalem in 1917, uh, the end of the First World War in 1918, and then we had the Paris Peace Conference and the Treaty of Versailles, and we had the mandate for Palestine, which really laid the foundation for the modern state of Israel. And I emphasize that because I think we've had a hundred years really of lawfare. The Arab-Palestinian world has opposed the reestablishment of the homeland for the Jewish people in Palestine, which was the Balfour Declaration. This was the objective of the Mandate for Palestine, which was a, an internationally sanctioned treaty adopted by the League of Nations, which at that time was the international community. And they made a promise um, to the Jewish people effectively to help and enable the Jewish people to return to Israel to reestablish their homeland in what was known as Palestine was, of course, Judea. Um, Palestine is a Roman name that the Emperor Hadrian gave to this area in order to cleanse it of ethnic, ethnically cleanse it of Jewish identity. But of course, we know the Jewish people were born and have their home in the hills of Judea and Samaria and Jerusalem. And so I think it's important to emphasize that internationally, legally, a commitment was made a hundred years ago to help the Jewish people do this. And the state of Israel is an expression of the Jewish right of self-determination. And what we are now seeing in the International Court of Justice is an attack, I would call it October the 7th, in the courtroom. So on October the 7th, you had an attack on the sovereign territory of Israel, 3,000 terrorists invaded Israel, slaughtered, massacred people. And um, I would put the case that this same thing is happening here in the law courts. 52 nations are really attacking the sovereignty, the existence of the Jewish state of Israel. They are using the legal system to undermine the very existence of the state of Israel. And I'll explain how this is uh, happening. So the, over the last um, week, in fact, from Monday last week, the uh, what was that, the 19th of February through till Monday this week, the 26th, we had six days where the nations came to the court, the world court, the International Court of Justice is the highest court in the world. It's called the world court. It's the UN's uh, judicial organ. And the nations were invited to come and put their case. It was a result of a General Assembly resolution at the end of 2022, in which 87 member states, that's less than half, adopted a resolution to ask the court for an advisory opinion. So these 87 states are by definition states hostile to the state of Israel. Many of them do not even exist recognize the existence of the Jewish state of Israel. That's most of the Islamic states. Think of Malaysia, Pakistan, Bangladesh, uh, Indonesia. Um, they still have a position where they don't even 
accept that Israel exists. So these states had uh, the General Assembly adopt a resolution, went to the court, and the court then is obliged to think about whether to answer these questions that have been put to it. So they sent an invitation to all member states of the UN, that's 193, and 52 states responded and three international organizations. And they said, yes, we want to participate. Um, and most of those 52 states are also Arab Islamic or Arab or African states, South American states that um, hold a very strong political position that Israel is occupying Arab territory. The three international organizations are the League of Arab States, the Organization of Islamic Cooperation, and the Arab, uh, sorry, the African Union. So together they represent uh, probably a uh, hundred member states, about half the number of UN member states, and all three of those organizations are very, very hostile to the existence of a Jewish state. They think it's an illegitimate occupation of Arab territory. So this is the context. Um, and so the court uh, convened in The Hague. Uh, as I say, you can see there's 15 judges on the court. They all represent different countries or regions in the world. The president of the court, newly elected, is a Lebanese Muslim judge. In the past, he's been very strongly critical of Israel. So his position is very clear already. The vice president, also recently appointed, is a Ugandan judge, Julia Sebutinde. And she recently, in the genocide case, issued an, uh, a dissenting opinion, very supportive of Israel. So already you have uh, two very different kinds of judges on the court. In addition, we have um, a Sudanese judge, a German judge, an American, Australian, um, Brazilian, uh, all kinds of judges. No Russian judge, by the way. The Russian judge uh, who was on the court, his term finished a, a couple of months ago. So uh, there we go. Um, we'll come back later to think about where this is all going to uh, go. The state of Palestine started off, they had half a day, they were invited to put their case. And so you can see, this is an advisory opinion procedure, but actually it's the Palestinians who are driving it. They drafted the UN resolution. They are behind the organizations that are here. They are mobilizing the member states to support their case. And when you say they, Andrew, you're talking about, uh, you know, Mahmoud Abbas couldn't draw up a legal mem memorandum if, you know, you gave him 20 years. It's money that's given to the PA that they then, you know, to help their people, whatever, but they spend it all on high, big, high lawyers who advise them. Even even the uh, there are guys in the U.S. State Department who help with their legal uh, um, all their legal cases. There's a Absolutely. whole uh, um, ring of lawyers that help them. Well, look, actually, the the legal entity that's behind this is the PLO, the Palestine Liberation Organization. That's the entity that entered the Oslo agreements with Israel. 
And it's still really the entity which is behind the Palestinian Authority. Uh, it's behind the so-called State of Palestine. They call themselves the State of Palestine. Uh, it's not a state. Um, even though it's recognized by a lot of other states, it's not legally or factually yet a state because it doesn't really have a government exercising independent authority over a defined territory. You could argue that maybe the PA is a kind of state within Area A of the West Bank, or even that Hamas is a kind of state within the Gaza Strip. But it's all very unclear. And I think at the end of the day, it's the PLO. And the PLO has the objective still to this very day of destroying the Jewish state of Israel, liberating Palestine. And Palestine is everything from the river to the sea. So their objective, and they have this support within the UN, is the exercise of the Palestinian right to self-determination. So this whole case this last week is all built around the legal right of the Palestinians to self-determination. Now, the picture here is a is a, a very famous British Jewish lawyer by the name of Philippe Sands. He wrote a brilliant book a few years ago called East West Street. It's about the 1940s and the international lawyers of that time uh, behind the Nuremberg trials and the creation of the crime of genocide. It's a brilliant book, but he leads the Palestinian legal delegation. And he was, I must say, brilliant last week, Monday. Uh, he's very articulate, highly sophisticated. They've been preparing this case for many years. And now this is their opportunity to put it to the highest court. And I think the point I want to get across is the claim they're making is exactly the same claim that the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem put in 1924, that the Balfour Declaration, the mandate for Palestine, the whole idea of a Jewish homeland is illegitimate. Okay? This is an imposition on the right of the indigenous Palestinian people to self-determination. They have the right to say where they want to live, how they want to live, in within which borders, and they're asking the court to recognize their right in precedence to override the Jewish right to self-determination. It's as fundamental as that. So the advisory opinions are requests concerning Israel's presence in Judea, Samaria, in the West Bank, but they're just using that as a lever to try and raise the whole, delegitimize the existence of, of Israel. Yeah, you're absolutely right, David. The question that's put to the court is about the occupied territories, which are the territories occupied in 1967, the West Bank, so-called East Jerusalem and the Gaza Strip. But yes, at the same time, they're, uh, they're putting this very absolute claim relating to the whole of the territory. And I think this is the dangerous thing about it. Um, the, the argument they make is that the occupation itself has become illegal because it's obstructing the right to self-determination. Um, so even if you can argue that in 1967, Israel was entitled to keep control of East Jerusalem, the West Bank, and Gaza Strip, they're saying now it's become illegal. It's gone on for so long. 
And effectively, Israel is annexing the territory, and that's illegal. So the argument is not just that Israel is doing illegal things. They're saying the the very existence of Jews in those territories, it includes settlements, and settlements is nothing more than Jewish people in those territories, is by definition illegal. So the occupation itself must be removed. They call for a total, immediate, and unconditional end to the occupation. That means removing every element of Israeli military and civilians in Judea and Samaria in the old city of Jerusalem. Right up to Jaffa Gate. Right up to Jaffa Gate. And they say it's got to be immediate and unconditional. And they go further and they say every other state in the world is obliged to respect this and make sure it happens because these are what are called peremptory norms under international law. They're such fun. It's the right of self-determination of Palestinians is so fundamental that it overrides Israel's security. It overrides um, any claims that Israel might have to sovereignty over these territories because the, the right to self-determination they claim is a fundamental human right which cannot be derogated from. <laughs> it's a huge claim. Yeah. And, okay. and I, I'd like to just add... This fits the PLO strategy written in their original charter to use any lands that they get freed up from Israel as a launching pad for, to further challenge and and uh, and uh, resist arm resistance included against uh, Israel's presence. Absolutely right, and and you sense that in the court. Here's a picture of the Palestinian delegation on the first. They they filled the courtroom almost. Mm. So every other state is allowed to have up to six people in the room. Every other state gets half an hour to put its case. The Palestinians got half a day, and they were able to fill the room with their delegation. And they were full of these very highly respected and probably very highly paid international lawyers from London, from Paris, from major universities around the world to put their case. So it's highly... It, it, it the atmosphere sitting in the courtroom was was I felt oppressive. Right. Can I ask you this? The the judges, the justices, is it a, is it fair to say that those sitting on the bank of of justices hearing this, in order to qualify to to get to those positions, you probably have to have some anti Israel credentials already. Well. Put it this way, um, they're all people who are part of the system. Yes. That's <laughs> that's the nature of the system. To advance within the UN, you you need to probably have anti-Israel credentials. That you, yes. At the end of the day, that's right, because the whole UN system is so biased towards the Palestinians. And I think this is one of the fundamental problems that rev- ever since 1948 and really more since the early 1970s, the UN is pushing the Palestinian cause. Um, It's so institutionalized within the UN. So even the um, 
you know, you had a Judge Bergenthal who 20 years ago was very important in the wall advisory opinion. Um, and he was a human rights lawyer, a Jewish human rights lawyer, and a very good one. Um, and he pushed back and he emphasized the importance of the Jewish right, self-determination, so forth. But even his presence is not strong enough to push back. And we don't have one of those on the court today. We don't have a Rosalind Higgins. We don't have a Bergenthal. We do have a very good Ugandan judge, and I hope she will be influential. So moving on, um, there were a few countries that were supportive of Israel. One was Hungary. Um, what I found amazing was that really for four, the first four days, nobody mentioned the 7th of October. Nobody mentioned Hamas. It just was not even present. Instead, it was an avalanche of anti-Israel rhetoric, and everything that Israel is doing is is wrong. Hungary was one of the first countries to stand up and say, no, um, this is problematic. Just look at what happened in Gaza Strip. And they presented some very good arguments also about the role of the ICJ, they say, is not to solve this conflict. It's not the court's role to get involved in these issues. The Security Council is the main body that should be looking at these issues. Um, the United Kingdom had a very good presentation. They argued that this is, in fact, a contentious case, not an advisory opinion. This is the Palestinians uh, seeking to circumvent the Oslo process, circumvent the negotiations to achieve their claims. That's You can't do that. Uh, secondly, they said the court doesn't have the information before it in order to make bindings of fact. I think it's a very strong case that Fiji also em emphasized. And they said the framework that's been agreed in the UN is about a resolution of this dispute by negotiations. We have Oslo Accords. Uh, you can't allow the Palestinians to override or circumvent their own uh, their own commitments to a negotiated process. Uh, and then they made an alternative argument. They said, even if the court does issue an advisory opinion, it must make sure that it doesn't override Israel's rights relating to borders, security, refugees, and Jerusalem. So th I thought the UK was, was very, very strong. This was, a, I thought, was quite interesting. The Zambian solicitor general who appeared in his wig um, and also the Zambians were quite strong, actually, in support of Israel. So there were a number of these sort of countries that came out and pushed back against the overriding narrative that the Arab and most African countries were putting out there. Now, this is the League of Arab States, uh, highly problematic. You can see here... Um, a British academic putting the case for the League of Arab States, and this was so extreme, so hostile, so I would say anti-Semitic in its spirit and in its intent. And basically the Arab states were saying everything about the Jewish homeland is illegitimate and illegal. The court should be going back and taking out of the mandate everything that refers to the Jewish homeland and in place 
It should be respecting the indigenous rights of the Palestinians to sovereignty over their homeland. Everything of Palestine from the river to the sea belongs to the Palestinians, and they, by definition, exclude the Jewish people. It was as simple as that. I couldn't believe it when I heard this. And, um, you know, you have the current UN rapporteur, human rights rapporteur, Albanese. She's a Italian. She's very anti-Israel. Well, this guy goes even further. Yeah. Um, the Organization of Islamic Cooperation, this was their main... Let me, let me just say on the, the Arab uh, League there, I'm, I, we've talked about it before. It, you know, the Balfour Declaration is one thing, but the League of Nations accepted it. And in the same uh, meetings with the same figures using the same legal principles, they also recognize the right of self-determination of Lebanon and Syria and Iraq. And if you question Israel whether that was a legal decision by those people concerning Israel, you're opening up the question of these other Arab countries as well under this notion of a common grantor. They all came from the same uh, sort of legal chain of title. And I, I just think, uh, and, and even Egypt, a member of the League of Arab States, Jordan, they have peace treaties with Israel, recognizing Israel, are, are they conceding to these arguments? I find it absurd. Mm. It, it, it's slightly absurd, but you know it's being put there as a very reasonable and, content, uh, and considerable case. Uh, many of these judges they don't know much about the history. Mm. They're dependent upon what is put to them by these lawyers, by the UN. By the way, the UN submitted over thirty thousand pages of documentation to the court. And it's all these UN reports from the 1970s onwards, which presents a narrative um, that Israel is occupying Palestinian Arab territory. So the court's been presented with a very one-sided case. The Organization of Islamic Cooperation put Jerusalem very much at the center of this, Al-Quds. Um, they went on and on about it, how Jerusalem, Al-Quds, and they didn't just limit it to East Jerusalem. They were talking about the whole city. They say it belongs to the Arab world, to the Islamic world. And if you read the charter, the covenant of the organization, Islamic Corporation, you can read there that liberating Jerusalem is one of the core objectives of the OIC. It was actually... Um... <laughs> It was an Australian Christian, I believe. He was a little deranged who scoped out and set fire to this uh, the pulpit of Saladin in the Al-Aqsa Mosque that uh, I think it was 1968 after the 67 war. You know, it was a crazy act, really stupid, that the, the OIC was actually formed in the wake of that to defend Islamic interests in Jerusalem. So uh, naturally, you expect them to stand up for Al-Quds. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I found this very, very striking, you know, um, that, the, that the Islamic world was so um, present in this. And it reminds me of the, um, you know, I think in a way since the 7th of October, something has been unleashed. The Islamic world is now very, very vocal, very strident. They're taking the front line 
Um, and, and they're doing that here in the court as well. They were not ashamed at all to be claiming Islamic dominion. And I thought to myself, well, where are the Christians? Where's the Christian world? Why are we not present? Mm. Or why is there not a organization of Christian cooperation, Christian countries? Yes. You know, the Western world is not present as a group. So we're being overwhelmed in a way. We're being, um, I think, sidelined. And it comes down to these very small nation states, which is why I think what Fiji did was significant. Um, and, you know, ICJ um, and Christians for Israel and others have been working a lot with the Fiji and Pacific Island governments over many years. And I think this is a fruit of that work but they were mobilized to be present in the court. Um, and to my mind, in a way, they represented uh, the Christian nations. They they didn't put a Christian perspective as such, but they simply stood up for history, for uh, the, the Jewish right to self-determination. And uh, I wish that there'd been more nations like this in the court. And I'm hopeful the court will listen to what they've said. Um, on the other hand, I think we have to realize that we're very much in the minority now. And um, it's, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a big battle. It felt very much like David against Goliath. <laughs> that was the feeling one had. But Fiji put its case and we were able to help them craft and present the arguments. And they're very similar to the UK arguments in many ways. And we were one of the few to really stand up for the mandate for Palestine and the right of the Jewish people there. We said, the mandate's a legal document. You can't just override it. Um, and you can't just look at Israel's obligations. Even if Israel has obligations under international law, so do the Palestinians. And Israel also has rights. You can't just ignore Israel's rights in relation to territory, in relation to self-defense, in relation to borders, in relation to security. And this is what's happening in this case. So that's what we tried to do in the 30 minutes uh, that we had at the very end of the proceedings. And we'll see what the court uh, comes up with. So... But the whole essence of, of this exercise is part of a strategy lawfare to avoid direct bilateral peace talks with Israel under Oslo or however you want it, and trying to get the world to declare them the sovereign in certain areas and 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 question Israel's existence to to then from that new position continue the struggle to to uh, destroy Israel and replace it with a Palestinian state. It's avoiding, yeah. and why don't the, the nations recognize this, that it's trying to, to uh, circumvent the accepted peace process that even Russia, the EU signed on, the U.S. all is, as signatories and guarantors? It's a really good question. You know, I felt even the U.S. in this case were rather weak. They they sort of pushed back against it, but one had the sense that they were not really uh, pushing back as strongly as they could have. And I think it's got to do with all the negotiations 
behind the scenes with Qatar, with the Russians probably. Uh, they don't want to go in too hard. They're pushing for a two-state solution as well. So maybe they see a court ruling that supports a two-state solution would support them. And I think that is rather problematic. And I think, you know, um, the European countries were largely missing in all of this. Um, or if they were there, I mean, you had Spain, for example. And they're pretty, very hostile. You know, they pretend to be um, supportive of international law and they bring out their lawyers. But the message at the end of the day is Israel has no rights whatsoever beyond the green line. So, you know, Israel has always said we need a presence in the occupied territories in order to be able to defend ourselves. And that includes the Jordan Valley. It includes... Um, certainly East Jerusalem and the environs of Jerusalem. And now the court is being asked to say, no, you've got to draw the boundary at the green line, which goes through the heart of Jerusalem. And I don't think many countries realize the consequences, the security consequences, the existential threat this really means to Israel. And many, I think because many of these are lawyers, presenting the case. Well, they're lawyers who sit in their own ivory towers in the capital cities of Europe and the West. They've never been there. They don't know really what's happening on the ground. They just read um, in an abstract sense. And so there was a kind of a disconnect between the legal reality, if you like, and the reality on the ground. Um, and the other thing, I suppose, David, just to kind of finish up with this, Israel is also not present in these proceedings. They were not there to present their case. That's Israel's choice. I understand it. They don't want to be lending legitimacy to this process. But it does mean that Israel's case is not really being put to the court. Um, and it came down to this very few number of states to try and, in a limited way, do that. Did they make uh, written submittals? Some countries made written but didn't do oral arguments. Well, Israel did right at the very beginning in July last year. They did submit a document. It was a short one that basically said, look, this whole thing is ridiculous. Um, this is overriding the Oslo Accords. Uh, the court should have nothing to do with it. But it didn't get into the substance, into the merits of the case. But the 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 um the fallout from this in a few months the court might give an advisory opinion it is that advisory it's not binding but the the Palestinians will then use that if they get a favorable decision to continue this lawfare by other means very much so you you'll see I think if this happens and you're quite right it'll probably be within the next few months um. You've seen it with the genocide case as well, right? Remember the court said, uh, 26th of January, its decision said, well, the South Africans haven't really proved genocide. There's maybe a plausible case, but we're not going to order a ceasefire because we we haven't 
been um, persuaded that there really is genocide. But e but even that is being used by those hostile to Israel to say, well, yes, the court is saying the genocide is plausible. So we see a lot of cases being run now at a national level. And I think this will happen here. If the court says in in any way that Israel's presence in these territories is somehow illegitimate, the occupation is illegal, anything along these lines, it's going to be used to support the boycott, divestment and sanctions movement. We'll see all kinds of um, proceedings and we're going to see a lot of litigation I know here, sitting in the Netherlands, we're already seeing it, you know, NGOs and others who are challenging the government for supporting Israel, You're not even allowed to support Israel militarily now because it might be a support of genocide. Well, the same argument will be used in the future to boycott Israel and isolate Israel. Yeah, but uh, I mean, it'll, uh, it could even affect Israel's uh, positions in in negotiations, where if they if their presence there is illegal, an illegal occupation, then there's nothing really territorially to talk about. No, yeah, uh, that's that's dangerous. It's very dangerous. I mean, it will. That's right. It will. I mean, the Palestinians argued, well, this will support negotiations because now there'll be a clear legal framework within which to negotiate. No, and it just improves their bargaining position immensely if it happens. Yeah, that's right. What is there to negotiate about Jerusalem or borders or security if the court's already said it's illegal? So I, I'm hopeful the court really won't go that far. They'll say there is a negotiating structure, um, but I, I, I think it's highly likely they'll say things which are highly prejudicial to Israel's position. Okay, we're separating out that from the genocide case. Uh, as you said, it was argued about six weeks ago, about four weeks ago, the court gave a, um, a provisional a, a ruling for some provisional measures. It was requesting a report from Israel within 30 days, which they submitted this week. Do you know anything what, how Israel responded to what they were requesting? Have you had time to... Even I haven't, I'm afraid. No, yeah, you were very busy with this case, and yeah. uh, and I'm very proud of you for uh, uh, kudos from the whole uh, Christian Embassy leadership and global family for what you're doing there to stand Thank up. And, and we, uh, you know, we were part of connecting you to the Fiji government. They want to move their embassy here. They're all those island nations, very supportive. And you're right. Uh, and I think that's our next next task, an international organization that truly looks out for Christian interests, including in Jerusalem. I don't I don't want the PLO or Hamas in control of the of the churches of Jerusalem. Forget it. Yeah. Yeah. It. Uh, but the genocide uh, case, uh, what's next? The South Africa has charged that uh, Israel is violating its obligations under the uh, um, to prevent genocide in Gaza or committing it. And uh, Germany has asked to intervene. Is there anything new on that? Uh, there's another 
country going to intervene on behalf of the Palestinians or South Africa? Yeah, look, it's going to be a long case, I think. As you say, South Africans brought another request for provisional measures. The court rejected it, said, look, we're not going to get involved. Yes. Um, and so now you have uh, what I think is going to take months and months for the court to hear the, all these other states that are starting to intervene. Uh, it's it's all a bit unreal in a sense because events on the ground are moving forward, and um, even if the, you know if the court's being asked to decide that Israel's committing genocide, uh, it all comes down to this question of intent. Can they prove that Israel really intends to destroy the Palestinians as a people, as such? Yeah. And they'll have to come up with something much more than they have so far. Uh, they will. They'll try. But yeah. uh, it's going to be a long a long case. And the same, um, in a sense, is for the advisory opinion. But I think an advisory opinion will come out earlier than a decision on the genocide case. And and but it goes back to the General Assembly, which is actually the UN Security Council that is seized of the process of resolving this conflict between Israel and the Palestinians, not the General Assembly. Yeah, you're right. You're absolutely right. So I think what's going on behind the scenes, you have these eighty or ninety states which basically able to get their majority resolutions through the General Assembly, but they get blocked at the Security Council level. Um, and the pressure is really on the United States now, yeah. whether the states will hold firm. And vetoing something that would prejudice yeah. Israel's position, yeah. yeah. And, and allow the Palestinians to circumvent their obligation to engage in direct talks with Israel. Yeah. And, and this is uh, a little worrying at the moment, given the US is starting to push pretty hard for a Palestinian state. Yeah, it's they've got a, a little time to try and do that. Uh, and it's probably more a campaign ploy than, than anything, uh, which is a shame playing politics with uh, the existence of Israel, uh, really an existential question here for Israel. And Israel talked about, you know, giving the Palestinian statehood before, and they'll do it again, but not right now. This is really tone deaf to uh, where Israel is right now by the Biden administration. And uh, I think unpardonable for them to really be pushing it hard. But maybe it's just part of the trying to get a ceasefire first. They need in air. The U.S. needs to be seen in Arab eyes as trying to do something to rein Israel in. That's the name of the game. And uh, hopefully it's not. I don't think they have enough time to really, uh, in office, to seriously do something about it. So um, that's my assessment. Right. Or leading up to November, I guess. And Yeah, 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 until the election. It, yeah. it already gets a little too late uh, when the polls... Uh, aren't good for Biden. Yeah. But who knows? A lot could happen between yeah. now and then. But yeah. um, uh, the, also, the International Criminal Court also sits in The Hague. It's yeah. not officially part of the UN system, but the same nations that run the UN are controlling the ICC 
and this probe, uh, uh, it's a formal probe now, I believe since uh, a certain date in 2014, that the former prosecutor, chief prosecutor, the uh, African lady, she did it the day after the three yeshiva boys were kidnapped and killed. So that focuses on Israel's response, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not who hit first, it's who, who hit back. And uh, But this conflict, this current conflict, Karim Khan, the new chief prosecutor, has made it part of uh, this probe. And what are you expecting there? Well, he um, he's trying to be balanced, um, but copying a lot of criticism, both from the Arabs for not doing enough and from, let's say, the Western countries and Israel for doing too much. Um, but he said his so you're right they 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 court has decided at least in a preliminary way that they have so-called jurisdiction over the case the whole question even well, though Israel's not a signatory they well, that's say. the thing Israel's not a party and she's not part of the ICC system not a party to the Rome statute neither is the United States Russia or China or Iran um, but the Palestinians are. So the question was, is Palestine a state enough? That to be- was finagled. They they really shouldn't be. <laughs> yeah. Well, this is the, the bizarre thing. So the court said, well, it's not really a state, but we'll we'll treat it as if it's a state. So they they feel they've got the right to prosecute for war crimes on Palestinian territory, um, which means they're going to look very hard at um, Israel's excessive use of force in this Gaza campaign against Hamas. And they will be, I think, um, looking seriously at, if not genocide, but certainly war crimes, crimes against humanity by the Israeli leaders, military leaders against uh, the people of Palestine. Um, But this will take years and years. You know, it'll be 10, 10 or 15 years before anything comes close to a prosecution. Mm. Court's got a lot of other things on its plate. Mm. Um, and they'll be pressured to do something. But Israel will not cooperate, obviously, so they'll have problems getting evidence. And um, we'll see. I haven't heard much from them in the last few weeks. Mm. Okay. We're well, right. We want to thank you for your time. I, I was watching uh, a video uh, by our friend Natasha Hausdorff, right, uh, from the UK, a British Jewish lawyer who served as a clerk on the Israel Supreme Court for a justice here. She's a sharp uh, lady. We've made appearances with her before, and yeah. she was talking about Mahmoud Abbas did a, a, an op-ed, I think, in the New York Times in 2011, where he basically announced this lawfare strategy and inviting the nations to join, that they were no longer really going to rely or, or, or uh, um, you know, uh, concede to direct bilateral talks. They were going to circumvent through all these uh, other legal mechanisms and that's what's been happening since. I think I think she hit it on the on the head, pointing to that op-ed. I, I went and looked it up myself, and it's quite uh, chilling how the world just goes along. But October seven, 
Um, I think it's intensified this lawfare incredibly. Um, yeah, this advisory opinion was there beforehand, but so many nations showing up now, and um, something in this, I believe, in the prophetic concerning this conflict is is accelerating. It is remarkable all these things coming and in sort of intensifying together. It's can't help but think there's some connection, even though the General Assembly resolution here was long before October the 7th. Something was building up, I think. October the 7th didn't just suddenly happen out of nowhere. Uh, and I, I think the Palestinian Authority um, has, you know, been working in close collaboration with Obviously, they want a unity government with Hamas. They're in conflict with Hamas, but at the same time, they know they can't survive without Hamas. By the way, we've seen the the Palestinian government resign in the last few days. And meeting in Moscow, yeah, try and form a, a consensus between Fatah and Hamas. It's a division of, of, of labor. You fight Israel, we'll go fight them in the courts, and we'll see who gets there first. And and uh, very chilling, but uh, they're meeting in Moscow to try and resolve their differences while, quite honestly, people in Gaza are starving. Yeah, yeah. And they don't care about it, neither one, neither Fatah or Hamas. Yeah, and it's tragic. In their heart of hearts, they don't care. No, and Israel's the only one doing anything. Uh, yeah. So... um. We're we're doing a course very soon, David, online. A little bit of a plug here: Israel on trial. Yeah. Uh, anybody who's interested, they can um, contact uh, David or the ICJ leadership. Uh, we're doing a pilot program. We're looking for people to participate in a an eight part online course: Israel on trial, beginning at the beginning of April. So, if you'd like to know more about these topics, we'd love to uh, to see you. Yeah, we're going to roll out uh, that uh, in the coming weeks, and uh, to make uh, people can can become better advocates for Israel, we have to be able to handle all these legal issues. It helps me with my legal background, and I just so appreciate and respect the the work you do in the international uh, law field, defending Israel. It's a it's a tough client to take a bad for. Oh man. Um, well yeah. worth it, my friend. Okay. Thank you so much. All right. Andrew Tucker yeah. from the director of uh, Think the Hague Initiative for International Cooperation. We will get information out soon about this course to become better advocates for Israel. And uh, we thank Andrew for his time and expertise. We'll be back next week with another uh, webinar series. And uh, meantime, at the top of the hour, 4 p.m. Israel time, you can join us for our global prayer gathering. We're going every day now. Uh, we're over 145 days now of praying uh, for Israel with Christians from all over the world. Please join us for the global prayer gathering. Go to our website, icj.org, for more on that. And that's it from Jerusalem. Shalom, and God bless you.